1: is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David and your host. Today's guest, Rebecca Mackay, is the author of two novels. Her first, The Borrower, was a book list top 10 debut, an indie next pick, an O Magazine selection, and one of Chicago Magazine's choices for best fiction in 2011. Her second book, The Hundred-Year House, just now out in paperback, receives star reviews from Publishers Weekly, Booklist, Library Journal, and Shelf Awareness. McKay's stories and essays appear regularly in places like Harper's, Tin House, The Wall Street Journal, and on This American Life and Selected Shorts. And her stories have been anthologized in New Stories from the Midwest, Best American Non-Required Reading, and Best American Fantasy, and quite remarkably, have been included in four consecutive years of Best American short stories. Rebecca Mackay is here today to talk about her short stories about her first story collection, Music for Wartime, a book everyone from the Chicago Tribune to BuzzFeed to the Huffington Post have called a must-read for the summer. Welcome to Between the Covers, Rebecca Mackay. Thank you. These stories, these 17 stories you've written over the course of 13 years, I get the sense that it's not just a snapshot of your evolution as a writer, but that it has been shaped in a different way than just here are the best stories I wrote in 13 years. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. And part of the reason that I didn't have a collection until now was originally I just couldn't see um, how they could cohere as a collection. I could have put out a stack of stories that I wrote and put a title on it, but um, I feel like a collection needs to come together in the same way a really great album does um back when we listened to albums entire albums of music you know like there's there's a a progression there's a story they speak to each other um and um although they're not all about the same person or anything like that it's not it's not a linked collection they're you know they're themed they they address they circle around some of the same themes and so partly I was going back to really early stories and revising them um, to fit what my aesthetic is now and also what the collection needed. A little bit towards the end, I was writing for the collection, um, seeing what pieces were missing. And um, I was trying to draw out the ways the stories spoke to each other.
1: So were there perfectly good standalone stories, successful standalone stories that didn't make the collection simply because
0: you
1: got an idea for what the collection
0: was. Yeah, exactly. Or ones that, like, they might have fit in kind of, but not really. Um, there was um, there was a story that I was sad to see go. you know, and they'll, they'll be in my next collection, um, but there was one um, that was published in Tin House uh, last year or this year called K-I-S-S-I-N-G. And um, I loved that story, and it was about a musician. It was about a drummer in a rock band, and I, I really wanted it to fit in the collection, and it just didn't... Um, it was about music, but it didn't speak to the other stories. It just wasn't the right fit, so it's going in the next one.
1: Well, tell us about some of the through lines that you tried to draw out in some of your earlier stories, or that you wrote towards in the stories that you wrote specifically with the collection in mind.
0: Yeah, I mean, really it's all there in the title Music for Wartime. Um, the idea there is, I mean, partly, I, I you know, I like that it sounds like an album title in a way, like, you know, some old LP you'd find on your grandparents' shelf. But, um... The themes of not just music but the arts and not just war but conflict um, go throughout them. So really what the collection is doing is asking the question of what it means to be an artist, to be trying to make art, to make something beautiful in a conflicted and um, inhospitable world. Well,
1: well, let me ask you about that a little further because you you include an epigram at the beginning – of a poem called consulting an elder poet on an anti-war poem and the poem itself is contemplating what if anything poetry can do in right. a time of of war does it have a, any tangible influence as art in in the, the world of action so what are what are your thoughts on that? What are your um, thoughts as a, a writer in terms of art in a time of war and a time yeah. of conflict?
0: I mean, I think it's it's a mode of survival. And it's also why we serve, you know, why we want to survive. It's what we're surviving for in many cases. Um and, and I don't just mean, you know, plenty of people need to survive a war and are not making art. But what I mean is we're, we're surviving because there is beauty yet to find, whether that's beauty that we are making or that we're finding in, you know, our family, whatever it is. You know, I mean, for me, my family background, which I write about quite a bit in this book, um, there are some pieces in here that are kind of explicitly autobiographical about my father's family in Hungary in the 1930s. Um, this was the you know, the the sort of the legacy that I grew up with was my grandmother was a novelist um, in Hungary. She wrote something like 40 novels in Hungarian. And she was writing under this really oppressive communist regime. She was um, kind of chose to write historical fiction so that she could be political and no one would call her out on it. Um, But she also wrote things that were modern, that were overtly political, that she couldn't publish. And um, my mother, who's American, the first time she went into Hungary, um, and this is something I write about in the book, um, she went into Hungary alone because my father couldn't go back in um, to meet her future mother-in-law, which, you know, kind of terrifying to begin with, like, go meet your future mother-in-law alone in a communist country. Um, and when she left, uh, my grandmother gave her, uh, I think in the book I said one, it was actually two manuscripts to smuggle out in her girdle on the train. And it's like onion skin pages. And then they were published something like 30 years later after mm-hmm. my grandmother was dead, after the Iron Curtain came down. So, I mean, that's the thing. Like That, that to me is the idea of how important art is. This is what I grew up with. Um, and I think we don't really get that until it's threatened. You know, where we are happily exercising our free speech blithely, often unaware consciously that that there are people who not only, you know, would die for that, but are dying for that.
1: And is it right, what I, I remember reading about your grandmother, that she's quite a figure in Hungary. There's a small museum. They yeah. celebrate the anniversary of her birth.
0: Yeah, or... there was like a big centennial thing. Yeah, yeah. Wow.
1: Um, and did she choose those specific manuscripts to have smuggled out because... Uh, of what she'd imagine would happen to those stories, if or to her, if yeah. she were to publish them. They were them
0: unpublishable. There. They were um, one of them. It's the translated. The translated title in English is "The Accused," and um, it is. It's the only one that I've read actually, because I don't read Hungarian. My father translated this one for me. Um, you know, it's it's about a guy. Struggling to survive in what was at that point contemporary Hungary, um, and very political and very critical of communism, um, there was no way that she could that she could write that. I mean, she throughout her career she was threatened, she was sued, she was um, she went into hiding at different points. There was a point early on where um, she was just living in a different house every night and sent my father somewhere else to be safe. She was barely, barely staying out of trouble. Hmm. In case
1: you just tuned in, we're talking today to author Rebecca Mackay about her short story collection, Music for Wartime. Well, one of the things that I really love about this collection is your inclusion of your family stories. And you have four out of the 17 stories. There are stories that are contemporary, funny stories, and there are magical realist stories that are both contemporary or not. And then there are interspersed these four family legends that yeah. i believe you originally published as non-fiction yeah but here you're publishing them as stories that um the question th- there's questions about the stories you're interrogating these legends how much are these legends yeah. true am i learning everything that there really is can can you tell us about that interrogation that you're doing with them yeah. both within the narrative and then outside of the narrative
0: yeah definitely i mean th- these ah they're they're three stories that are called legends and then there's this other one that's um, kind of wrapping it all up but um, the three legends are basically stories that I've been trying to write since literally high school um, all three of them um, there's the story of my grandmother poisoning a soldier with a bottle of ink there's a story about her painting women's faces to make them look old so they wouldn't get raped by soldiers as they did resistance work and there's this story about when I was a baby and this bird flew in our house and it was the last time my grandparents saw each other um, Um, all three of those I've been trying to write, you know, every college workshop that I ever did, I'd have one of those stories and I would tell it from a totally different point of view. Um, I would make it completely fictional. Um, so it's not like I'm literally working on the same drafts, but those ideas. And finally I realized that, um, first of all, I I wrote them actually for the story collection. They were what I felt was missing. They were the kind of the through thread of the collection um, that makes it not just a pile of stories, but also an investigation of my. It's a self-conscious move, basically. You know, I'm putting them in there, and it raises the question of why then I would be the author who would then write these stories that have nothing to do with it. But why am I writing this story about? You know, Johann Sebastian Bach living in someone's living room in 2001. That story might mean something different knowing my family history, knowing who I am as a writer, which is, of course, you know, a certain way I'm positioning myself in here. There's a lot more going on than just these stories. So I wrote them for the collection. And I realized as I put them in, the only way that I could really tell these stories was to not tell them straight, but to be honest about the struggle of telling these stories and that I've been given this information. I doubt a lot of it. It's a little bit too good to be true, a lot of this stuff. My father is a poet. He makes stuff up. Um, You know, things change over time. There's what I want to believe versus what's maybe more realistic. And and so that was the only way I could really tell them was to have the stories be about that doubt.
1: Well, let me ask you a question because, of course... It, the skepticism is understandable, given these are stories that are passed down and repeated, not always probably by the same person. And then the fallibility of memory, like for yeah. once for one, for one uh, story around the poisoning of the soldiers, your your grandmother can't remember which army, for instance, they they're coming from. but where, did you did you ever come to a point where you found that there was actual? fudging of the facts by someone who had told you the story, for instance?
0: You know, the one thing I know is that, like, if you ask my father the story on two different days, it's two different stories. So it's like, well, something is false, whether it's all false. I don't know. You know, um, basically, at some point, I really do want to actually write a full on nonfiction book about this Um, because their story only gets more and more bizarre, like, There's some stuff that, you know, certain details that were like just too crazy to even put in these that actually are some of the ones that I really do think are true, probably investigable, if -hmm. that's, is that a word? Um, I can see where that could go. And for now, you know, I wrote them kind of as fiction. They were published together in Harper's and Harper's took them as nonfiction. And then they had to go through sort of this fact checking sieve at Harper's, which was really interesting. I was still allowed to basically say, this is the story I was told. I don't know that part can't fact check that, but then I'm saying something about, um, you know, what year my grandfather was born. They had to investigate all this stuff. It was really interesting. That
1: is interesting. Yeah. Well, before we depart from your, from your family history, since I do think it, it haunts the entire collection, but what particularly haunts the entire collection is the the way your family falls on both sides of the conflict in World War II. So can, right. Okay. Can, yeah. And also the way I feel like that, it feels like that haunts you. Yeah. And so yeah. If, if you would be willing to talk just a little bit about oh, yeah. your grandfather. No, I can. Who yeah. was briefly married to your grandmother. <laughs> um, yeah.
0: They were briefly married and they were first cousins, which has been kind of like, it's not something you necessarily want to go around saying, but uh, it's the truth. <laughs> um, so, um, The deal with my grandfather is that he was a member of parliament in Hungary and he was also the editor of one of the major newspapers, which like those two jobs shouldn't go together. Um, But um, what is what we definitely know for sure, this is indisputable. He um, while my grandmother was a liberal and an author, she was an actress before that. She was, um, you know, hiding, protecting a lot of her Jewish friends my grandfather was the author of the second set of anti-Jewish laws in Hungary. Um, And they were, you know, they were not genocidal laws, particularly, but they put a lot of people out of work. Um, They kind of put down the red carpet for the Germans, um, wittingly or not. And um, later, he was very anti-German and started this resistance radio station in the mountains and was jailed by the Gestapo. Um, and it's really, uh, what's really unclear to me is whether when he um, turned and worked for the resistance, whether that was a, any change of heart on the Jewish issue or whether it was just anti-German. Right. Um, you know, he was a nationalist. He didn't like the Jewish refugees coming in. Then he didn't like the Germans coming in. Or... Was he, as my father always told me, a really, he was really young. He was like 30 when this all happened. I mean, it's like this very young guy in parliament. Um, And, you know, was he sort of, you know, my, my father always said was, you know, he was, he was kind of forced into this. He was trying to find a solution because the other people's solutions were worse. This is what he came up with. The more I investigate, I really don't think that's true. And uh you know it's weird I knew him he eventually ended up in Hawaii um and I knew him as a kid and he was this really funny old man he was a yoga instructor who sold real estate and he was oh. like would stand on his head in his Hawaiian shirts and he was this like total goofball um and um it's really hard to reconcile that with like what I know
1: yeah. you know <laughs> well I can say very confidently that I really want to be on your shoulder when you try to figure puzzle this out in, yeah. in the book that you do to grapple. I know you've yeah. talked about wanting to grapple with this yeah. more. Like, I love, that. I love the image of you with your grandmother's 40 books that you can't read. Yeah, yeah. And that mystery and then this conflict. Like, yeah. it's so fascinating yeah. to me.
0: I think that's it. I think, I think one of the reasons that I want to write this book, it's not just that I want to investigate and it's not that I feel like everyone needs to listen to my particular family story or something like that. It's that I think why it might appeal to readers is that so many of us are in a situation where like we people didn't know their grandparents there's some mystery in your family and there's someone that maybe you feel some connection with some grandparent who died when you were younger and you're just never going to know them and in my case um you know that is the situation my grandmother was run over by a bus when I was a baby um she is the person in my family who I have the most in common with. We're, we're the authors in the family, Mm -hmm. um, other, and other things too, you know, like she was an actress. I acted a lot in college, all these things. Um, I didn't know her. And I'm in the somewhat unique position of a very unique position of having 40 novels by her sitting on my shelf and history that I can go and investigate and puzzles to solve that I can actually solve. And I think that, um, there might be something to relate to in that, if even if just through wish fulfillment for some people that like, I'm in a, I'm in an enviable position to be able to do this, even if I know that 90% of what I'm going to find on my grandfather's side is really disturbing.
1: In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to author Rebecca Mackay about her short story collection, Music for Wartime. So are there any considerations that you made that are specific to trying to be loyal to the facts and the in the legends um, it, it, that you are making in a way that you aren't making when you're writing your stories?
0: Um, I mean, yeah, well, basically when the, when Harper's wanted to fact check everything, then suddenly it was like, oh, well, okay, I, I got to change this little, you know. Yeah. Like, oh, you need me to, like, look up numbers. <laughs> this is completely foreign to me. Um, so, and then I, some, you know, what appeared in Harper's actually got, a little wordy sometimes. So I had to. I went back and changed it and softened it up for, for being in the collection. Um, but um, yeah, you know, at the same time the one, the story called Suspension April 20th, 1984, this is the, the fourth of the family stories. It's not one of the legends. It's a story about a photograph taken at my sixth birthday party and then we go backwards and forwards in time. I completely made that up. The details in that story about my family and my grandfather and stuff like that, those are true. But Um, my grandfather would not have been at my sixth birthday party. There is no photograph. I said something about like a steep hill in the backyard. We live in Chicago. There's no steep hill in our backyard. Like, (laughs) total baloney. Um, But um, because, it, you know, I didn't have to, you know, if I'd published that in Harper's, they'd be like, okay, great, let's see the photograph. (laughs) I
1: I love the fact that the photograph is not real, but all of the family details. I mean, not the, yeah. six, not the six-year-old birthday, but no, the but big like, details are real.
0: Right, 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 exactly. Like the, you know, I'm giving details in there about my grandfather starting this radio station in the Buddha Hills and like, I, yeah, that stuff's real. Right. But like my sister jumping on a trampoline and the like, she was like 10 years older than me. She's like 16, just theoretically when this story, happened. would not have yeah. been jumping on a trampoline.
1: So, Rebecca, do you have a section of prose we you could read for our listeners?
0: Yeah, I could read something um really strange. Does that sound good? That, okay. sounds,
1: that sounds awesome.
0: Okay. Here's what I'm going to do. It's it's a story called Couple of Lovers on a Red Background, and um, it's got nothing to do with what we were just talking about, which is – maybe that's good. And um, I'm going to read the beginning, and then I'm going to, like, skip ahead and read a paragraph from the middle, and then I'm just going to leave it hanging. Um, all right. And it's basically – it's a, it's a weird sort of love story. This woman ends up with Johann Sebastian Bach living in her apartment. I've been calling him Bach so far, at least in my head. But now that he's started wearing my ex-husband's clothes and learned to work the coffee maker, I feel it's time to call him Johan. I said it out loud once when I needed him to get off the couch before the super came up, but he didn't respond. He went to the vacuum closet only because I practically carried him. No easy task pushing someone so big and sweaty, even with the weight he's lost since he got here. I would take him out for some real German food, but if there is one thing I've learned from the movies about caring for transplanted historical people, it's never to take them out in public among the taxis and police and department store mannequins. I've kept the curtains closed and the TV unplugged, but I did introduce him to the stereo so he'd have something to do while I'm gone. I'm proud of how I did it. I dug my angel music box out of the Christmas decorations and played it for him. He seemed familiar, so I pointed back and forth between the angel box and the CD player, and then put on some handle. He was not at all scared, and now he's pushing buttons and changing discs like he was raised on Sony. At first I only let him have Baroque, but we've been moving up in history. He's fond of Mozart, but for some reason Tchaikovsky makes him giggle. When I played him Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, I thought he was going to wet the couch. Five minutes later, he went to the piano and played the main part from memory, busted out laughing at certain phrases. If such a thing is possible, he played it sarcastically. He has a laugh, incidentally, like you'd expect from a pot-smoking 13-year-old. On the phone the other day, my mother said, who's that laughing over there? At least she thinks I'm dating again. And then what I'm going to do is skip ahead. So he's living there for a while. We find out how he got there. He, like, crawled out of her piano one day. Um, And, uh things progress okay which is all to say he's not bad looking it makes you think technically he's a married man but even more technically his second wife died 300 years ago and it's not as if i can go out on dates now and leave him alone and i can't bring anyone back here then there's this he had 20 children he's clearly very fertile and any child of his would be a musical genius His sons certainly were, and his daughters might have been, given the chance. Could that be the reason this happened, so I can have his daughter and give her a decent shot at life? The question, then, is how to seduce an 18th century German.
1: You've been listening to Rebecca Mackay read from Music for Wartime. I'm really glad you chose that story, because (laughs) this collection is actually really funny and really fun, and it doesn't feel... It feels very organic. The fact, the exploration of of suffering, of history and pain, and and um, and also all of this sort of rollicking, fan, fantastical and fun scenarios at the same time. Somehow, I feel like it's it yeah. coheres.
0: Good. I'm glad you said that because I think you know sometimes I get to talking about it in interviews and stuff, and it's like we're talking about war and death, and it's, yeah. it makes it sound like this really serious collection. And there's a story in there about reality TV, and they're- it's you know it's it's um well that's
1: that's a perfect example that that story the november story the november story yeah that which is one of my favorites because it is really really funny but it also feels like it's asking a similar question as the legends right like um the truthfulness of narrative what can we know of other people and because here we have like someone who's working in a reality tv show and they're forcing people to act certain ways or coaxing different reactions, but then editing it in an entirely different way, depending on what's just like we would imagine on on reality TV.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and
1: then even editing their own
0: lives, essentially, when they come home from work. Right. Right. That's like carrying over into her personal life, which yeah. is disastrous. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm really glad you picked up on that. It's um, it certainly speaks to the big themes of the collection in that it's a reality show about artists, like pitting artists against each other and eliminating them. And they're trying to make art in this very artificial circumstance under all this stress. It's a very different kind of war than, you know, the literal wars in in a couple of the other stories. Um, But, but yeah, it's, it's also very much about, it very much speaks to the theme of um, truth and how we make the truth and how we question the truth.
1: Yeah. And on this line of, of sense of humor, you, you're also a blogger for plowshares right? and you do these great, Humor pieces online, and you even have an alter ego Twitter identity, right? <laughs> yeah. Can, can you tell okay. us about
0: Can you tell us about him? Okay, so here's here's what <laughs> happened. I um I did this I did this blog post. Ploughshares is a literary magazine. They have this online presence too, and I did a blog post, one of many, but for this one of was basically, um, I kind of made a sc- like screen captured fake Facebook. Um, up status updates from this author who I named Todd Manley Kraus and it totally made him up but basically it's the guy that everyone at least everyone in the writing world, the art world whatever you know knows the, this guy on Facebook who's just so self-congratulatory and the humble brags and the kind of, false enthusiasm for other people's work that's really about his own work. and But it really what the essay was about was about my own fear that I'm that guy. You know, we all know that guy, then we're all afraid that we're that guy because you have a book to promote. And it's like, come to my reading in Portland. Yay, it's going to be great. And you're like, oh my God, I'm that guy. Um, so... Um, It was apparently very cathartic for people to read and this huge response to it. And it was particularly, I think, from a lot of women writers who feel like um, male, certain, only a few, but certain male writers do this and get away with it where women could never get away with it. Right. it became it, – it went kind of rather viral within the writing community at least, which was fun. And some people got really offended, which was even more fun And because, um, you know, sort of like the shoe fit and they knew it. And <laughs> then they felt awkward on Facebook. And, um, and um, yeah, I just – I kept thinking of more things for him to say. I'd had so much fun making these fake status updates. I was like, he needs a Twitter account. So he I, – I, he only tweets, you know, like – uh, you know, sometimes I'll get like in a certain mood, and I'll do like seventeen tweets from him, and then sometimes he's silent for uh, for a little while. But it's like Todd Manley Krause is his handle. You know, it's yeah. just his name.
1: Well, so. given that it comes not just from humor, but also from a, a fear,
0: the yeah. fear of
1: of um, being that person. Do you find yourself? Doing two responses at once. Here's my Facebook, my my Facebook thing, and here's my way to exercise that by totally. by putting something on my my fake Twitter. Account.
0: Totally, I totally do that. Like the thing that I like stopped myself from saying, where I'm like, I can't say that. That sounds a, like completely obnoxious. Then I log into Twitter and say it as him, or um, and sometimes it's like that. You know, I'm feeling really sorry for myself because it's like you know oh like they only gave me a short review and the what I, you know like that's <laughs> come on but then I'll go and like I'll have him say it cuz right. it like lets it out and right. I'm laughing at myself and um and then there are times um, I mean there are there are times when people <laughs> I have friends who will literally just send me screen captures of other people's Facebook updates and be like Todd Manley Krause needs to say this exact thing on Twitter i was like I can't do that but you can get some inspiration from
1: <laughs> Well I've been really enjoying your various ones including your fake Amazon reviews and and Yeah uh, those and, are fun. Yes. Back to the story that you just read the the love affair with Bach that okay. comes out of the piano. That That is one of many iterations of uh, the theme of music and art. There's a, there's a repetition of of painters, of yeah. actors, yeah. and of— mus- Writers. And writers and yeah. musicians yeah. throughout the piece. Is this simply because this is your family?
0: Yeah, this is really it. So, like, early on in my writing career—I'm talking about, like, you know, college and, and a couple of years after— I really felt like to write serious fiction, I needed to write about, like, gritty, urban— stuff with sort of uneducated characters. I have no idea where I got this idea, but I felt like that's serious fiction. And the problem is, like, that's just not how I grew up. Like, I, my parents were college professors. Everyone in my family, even beyond my grandparents, everyone's either an academic or an artist of some kind. My sister is a musician. Um, you know, like, we have actors. We have... like That's that's all I know. And that's who my friends are. And that's, you know, the world I live in. Um, and I, I just gave myself permission to start writing about that early on. You know, I can write about kind of nerdy, geeky, artsy people. That's fine. Um, And, um, and so yeah, I mean, you know, I think some of the stories in here did come about, you know, I've started focusing on the theme, writing to the theme a little bit and felt like, for instance, I, I, I really felt like I needed a story about that was deeply about music in here that was really about a musician, Um, not like a, I mean, Bach is a musician, but you know what I mean. And um, so I have a story in there called Cross that's about this um, cello player in a string quartet. It's it gets really deep into the descriptions of music, um, which I felt comfortable writing about. I wanted to write about, but it you know it felt like it was a missing piece in the book until that point. But um, but yeah, no, the, like there are pieces, many of the pieces I have that are not in the book are also about academics or artists or. Um, they just you know i think they you know they lead interesting lives right. um, there's stuff there's a lot of stuff to write about there well there's this
1: interesting thing that happens and i don't know if it's a happy accident or if it was intentional on your part in in forging the collection but having stories about actors and having stories about refugees who are leading a second life right. essentially it doubles down on the idea of what do we know mm-hmm. because you yeah. have people leaving a life and and coming into a new life literally in the briefcase with the stolen identity yeah. and you have family members who are starting new lives, including your father, who I yeah. believe was an adult refugee. Himself. He
0: was, um, he was 21. He was... he was part with your college and yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's, I mean, you're, yeah, you're really onto something there. I, mean, I think it may be slightly subconscious on my part, but that's absolutely, um, accurate. And, um, I think I've always had in my mind this question of, what it means to start over, you know, what it means to just kind of create a new identity for yourself, partly because my father was a refugee and we had kind of a constant stream of refugees living in our basement throughout the 1980s in suburban Chicago. People would get out and live in our basement for a few months and then, um, you know, get their visa and be on their way. And, um, you know, I I think that's a theme in my other work too. I mean, the, the borrower, um, they're not central to the story, but there's a whole theater company living upstairs from this woman, um, who's the main character. And in the hundred year house, it's, it's very much, um, in many ways, a story about taking on new identities and, and reinventing yourself. It's also very much a, a story about artists. It's set at an artist colony. Mm-hmm. So, um... I think the, yeah, basically what I'm saying is you're right. Smart, smart point.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask you about the Museum of the Dearly Departed. To me that if I were to guess, I would guess that more than any story was written for the collection. Oh, yeah. It was. Yeah. Okay. Because it feels like it unifies all of the threads, the family legends and the the contemporary concerns that are happening Mm -hmm. in the collection. And it's
0: the last story in the book. And um yeah, even to the point where I think there are little pieces of some of the other stories in there. It's basically the the story um, concerns an apartment building in Chicago where almost all of the residents have died in the night from this gas leak, um, and the only survivors are this elderly Hungarian couple. Which of course, you're reading this story; it's the last in the book. You know, there's a connection to my family. Like you know, I'm talking about more than just the story. Although I published it, you know, on its own as well. Right. Um, and this woman who's um, Coming back in to sort through an apartment and sort through stuff because it, she has inherited it, but she didn't know that her fiancé was still in love with and in touch with his ex-wife, whose apartment it was. And she actually thought she was dead um, previously. Um, the ex and her fiance have both died. She through a weird legal twist has ended up with the apartment and she's going through it trying to make sense of this woman's life and also who her fiance really was, that he would betray her in this way, why he still was in touch with this woman. Um, and then she's also interacting with this Hungarian couple who, you know, for them, the fact that it was a gas leak and this woman, this elderly woman had um, very narrowly escaped the gas chambers and, um, uh, in World War II, um, this woman really feels like the whole thing is her fault and it's fate catching up with her. Um, so, um, yeah. And I think, I think in a lot of ways, it's a story about, you know, this woman, Melanie, trying to make sense of all these stories in the same way that I've been as a writer, as a person trying to make sense of all these stories, um, that I've been given by my family and the stories that I'm telling, I'm, I'm trying to make sense of them. Are there
1: any, in, in relationship to that specifically, are there any touchstone writers for you? Are there people that you go to for inspiration around grappling with with refugees, with mysterious family history, huh. with with, uh, uh, yeah. with con- conflicts about what your family members have done in, in the past that you've inherited the history of?
0: Yeah. I'm going to answer it very loosely. I think there are writers like Nabokov who are very important to me who... As far as I know, Nabokov didn't spend much time writing about his own family, but um, you're constantly questioning what you're being told and why you're being told it as you read this and and wondering whether you're being lied to. Hmm. Um, If you read a book like Pale Fire, where he's just completely messing with us and making up this country that he's supposed to have been like this refugee prince from, but he's nuts. Right. So – I think maybe, you know, that kind of does relate in a lot of ways to, to my family, maybe not to Nabokov's family, just to <laughs> my family.
1: Um, well, he was a refugee.
0: Well, he was. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And he yeah. didn't feel
1: like he could go. Even, he felt like even if he went back, he wouldn't be going back. Like right. there was nothing to go back to. Yeah. Essentially.
0: Yeah. I think his native land, his, his native country was his books, basically. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he's one. You know, I think there are other writers. Um, Alexander Heyman is someone who plays in a really interesting way, not just with the idea of being a refugee, which he is, but um, but of um, messing with that line between autobiography and fiction.
1: And you like doing that?
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, th- I think um, I like unreliable narrators. I like—it's not so much— I don't know, that somehow all the talk about, like, oh, blurred genres and whatever kind of does nothing for me. That does not excite me in any way. What excites me is messing with readers. And I mean that in the best possible way because I love to be messed with as a reader. I do, too. Yeah. Yeah. You know
1: That's that's one of the compelling things about encountering the legends periodically as we go, I think, because it really gets you out of the mode of just accepting everything in a specific way. Mm -hmm. Because if it was all short stories— then you could slide into a cer- certain zone i think
0: yeah yeah suspension of disbelief this is all fiction and i'm kind of trying to yank you back out of it and like well it's fiction but maybe parts of it are true and maybe maybe this thing i'm telling you is true isn't true and um there's a and i'm reminding you of my presence in the collection as an author mm-hmm. um which is i think not always something that's done um you're constantly being asked to think about why I would write these stories you you talked about
1: potentially at some point doing grappling in a deeper way with your family history and memoir mm-hmm. potentially is there Another project that you're that's that's coming up before that. That, oh, you're, yeah. that you're working on. Yeah,
0: I'm working on a novel already. You um, are. Yeah, yeah.
1: Can, would you be willing to tip your hand a no, little I bit can. about
0: it? No, I can. I can totally. I have. You know, I I feel like it's dangerous to talk about it too much, but I have my like my my your elevator pitch, it? my yeah. line. Yeah, um, the working title is The Great Believers, and I don't know if that's really going to um, end up on the book jacket or not, but it's a story that's set partly in Chicago in the 1980s against the backdrop of the AIDS crisis. And it's set partly, um, in modern day Paris where a woman who's a survivor of that scene where a lot of her friends died in the eighties is now going over to try to find her daughter who she's, um, estranged from. Mm -hmm. Um, but basically trying at the same time to make sense of the stuff that happened in the eighties. So I'm going back and forth between those two time periods, um, and there's also, at the same time, a lot of talk about Paris in the 20s and the art scene then. Um, I'm I'm having a lot of—this sounds like really weird to say about a book that's basically about AIDS. I'm having a lot of fun with it. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, you know, I think I have—despite what's going on in the book, I have some really joyful, fun characters, and that's that's been fun to work with. Well, Well, let me ask you about this
1: book. What I was trying to get at around music for wartime is, do you read while you're writing— do you read with Oh Do you yeah. read a, do you read certain types of books where you hope to help yeah. to dimensionalize your writing, or do you try to stay away from other No,
0: I have voices? this really weird balance. What I do is and I they happened by accident with my first book, and then I was like, Oh, I guess that's just what I do. Um, with my first book, I had pulled out all these books that I wanted to read that were sort of touchstones. And the borrower um there's some intertextual play with Huckleberry Finn and with Lolita. And I had those books on my desk and some other stuff, and I kept Thinking, like, oh, I'm going I'm to read them and, like, you know, get stuff out of there. And I never actually opened them. I mean, I'd read them in the past. They just sat on my desk for, like, five years while I wrote this book. So that's basically what I do. I pull out books. Yeah. And then for The 100-Year House, it was, like, The Turn of the Screw and all yeah. these. I just had this stack of books and I just never touched them. And, like, it's sort of this idea of it's somehow something's going to seep into the desk and, like, up into my computer, maybe. But you probably um,
1: didn't have a stack for the collection since they happened at different
0: times, or right. did you? Yeah, no, no, not so much. Sometimes I'll be working on a certain story, and I'll still do that. Yeah. I'll put something out. Um, for the, you know, at the same time, if uh, there are times when I need to do actual research. You know, I'm reading a lot about the AIDS crisis. That's, that's a different thing. But mm-hmm. in terms of, um, you know, I, I feel like I... I have the stuff that I've already read, um, I might read something else and just, you know, not trying to really mine it for information, but sometimes, for instance, when I was writing The 100-Year House, um, it, it moves back in time from the 90s to the 50s to the 20s, and when I got to, um, the 50s and the 20s, I really wanted my language to match the era. I didn't want to be sounding like someone in 2015 writing about the 20s, so, um, like, for instance, when I got to, to this 1929 section, I was reading all the Fitzgerald I'd missed.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I was I was also watching a lot of, you know, some of the first talkies came out that year. So I was watching some of those on, you know, on my computer. Um, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to model myself after this. It was just I needed that tone. I needed the language. I needed to immerse myself in that a right.
1: little bit. That makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: it was great having you on between the covers today, Rebecca. Thank you. We're talking today to Rebecca Mackay about her story collection, Music for Wartime. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.